can't hand you a business plan, but we can make you business wise. So sit back and learn to make stacks with the octopus of enterprise. Hi, Diana here, and you find me just coming out of a team planning session. I just love it when we get to share ideas, lots of different views from different people with different skill sets and experiences, all of whom work here at the deck. Something I firmly believe helps us enormously when it comes to creating new innovative programmes and opportunities for our students, for our graduates, for our businesses and for our community, which got me thinking about how great and how crucial collaboration is for me and my innovative process. But is that the same for everyone? Well, I got together with a couple of pro collaborators and this is what they had to say. So today's episode is focusing on another important strand in innovation. That is the value of collaboration in innovation. And who better to discuss this with than Joe Hunter, founder and CEO of 64 Million Artists, and Dr. Sophie Frost, consultant, researcher, podcaster, and writer working across the cultural, creative, and heritage sector. Welcome both. Welcome to the Octopus of Enterprise. How are you both doing today? Very well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Brilliant <laughs> to have you here. <laughs> what a spiel, Diana. Thank you very much. I forget how long-winded that is. <laughs> uh, well, no, if you're multi-talented, get it in there. That's what I say. And Sophie, we have to point out that, first of all, Joe introduced you to us. Um, you were the perfect guest. We liked a load of the stuff you were doing, but it was when we both scrolled down your website and we saw a picture of you with a giant inflatable octopus. So it was just meant to be. I, I do, I do. And I love that you love that because I really appreciate it and not many people really appreciate it. And I felt it was just too much of a photo op. I mean, after seeing the photo, Henry and I then went on to talking about what would be our spirit animal. Um, Henry said somebody had suggested panda to her because she's clumsy and likes to sit around for long periods, which I thought was a bit cruel. And then I was going, mm, I'd quite like to be a horse. Um, what about you guys? Do you have a spirit animal? I have one. I've always felt I'd be a zebra because I feel like often on the outside, I try and be quite colourful. But inside, I'm really a pack animal. I like being with my tribe. You oh, know? I need right, the reassurance yeah. of the group, I think. Joe, what about you? I think my instinct is a lion because I like to be the leader. <laughs> But I also imagine lions as having a big heart and I feel like I'm a leader with a big heart. I will say that the wild zebras and lions aren't particularly known for great collaboration. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should have thought about this a bit better, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but clearly in the world of spirit animals, it has worked for you too. And I guess that brings us back round finally to the actual topic today. That's collaboration in relation to innovation. So I guess my first question to both of you is, why are we talking collaboration in relation to innovation? Why is it so important? Sophie, do you want to start? Oh, gosh. OK. Um, well, I feel like you can't have innovation without collaboration. You might be familiar with Everett Rogers. He wrote this book called The Diffusion of Innovation in the 1950s, and I still think about it now. And he was studying... Um, agricultural reform across America and why certain farmers were choosing pesticides and other types of new fertilizers. And he said that innovation is solely a social process. He describes it as a democratic process and you only innovate by talking to each other and slowly creating change that way. So he saw it as this very kind of positive, enlightened way. It only happens through 
constructive conversations with your peers. And so I guess for me, that's why collaboration and innovation, they're the same word as far as I'm concerned, I think. And I was thinking a lot about what makes someone a great collaborator. And he talks a lot in that book about um, innovation champions and the kind of sort of skills and attributes they have. Things like being very emotionally intelligent, very intuitive, being a bridging person, not necessarily someone who's leading the conversation, although they can be, but they're more someone who's sort of facilitating it. Great. So for you, Sophie, we're talking people, conversation, connectors, really, when it comes to being innovative. Joe, what's your angle on this? I mean, I think, like Sophie said, I think it's a real myth that kind of the best innovation is led by kind of charismatic leaders who lead from the front. I suppose when I was talking about leading like a lion, for me, it is about being in a pack, isn't it? Being with a team. And for me, that's where the best ideas happen. And it has to be good. I mean, this is the thing to say is that, you know, positive collaborations are places where people feel kind of safe and vulnerable enough to be able to take risks, to be able to try things out, have that space to bounce things around with each other bad collaborations where you know people are shut down or you know there's a huge power imbalance or you know maybe they're not so productive there's probably lots of people who've been in bad collaborations that think do you know what actually I just have better ideas on my own (laughs) of course we all have different learning styles and different ways of thinking but my instinct and my kind of understanding for the work that we've been doing over the last 10 years is that when we are put in a position where the environment is right for us to have strong collaborations that's where the best ideas always come from because they innately have diversity in them they have you know people are coming from different perspectives people are bringing different life experience um yeah and so you can always cover more ground Brilliant. You've kind of preempted my next question in a way, Joe, but I want to go back to the beginning of what you were saying there, which is, you know, the safe space, the trust to take risks, to actually try things out and that calculated risk taking within the context of that safe collaborative space. So that's really chiming to those points. Um, I was going to talk about a discussion that we had um, on a podcast around innovation and space that was with Stephen Dobson and Sophie Kavanagh, another Sophie. Um, <laughs> Anyway, they were talking about the spaces for innovation and actually some of them were a bit random and unrelated. So Sophie mentioned, you know, great ideas in the swimming pool and Stephen walking in the park. And that's my experience in my creative background as well. And so you're talking about those successful collaborations of people from different places, spaces, unrelated folks in terms of their field or the umbrella that they're working in, getting together and working on an innovative solution or a project. Yeah. And because I think that's, you know, when we are trying to come up with new ideas, it might be that walking in the park on your own is where you have your best idea. We did a session recently with some PhD students at King's College London, and we're looking at what's the difference in people's learning styles, where do you have your best ideas? So some people say, oh, I definitely have my best ideas bouncing around with other people. Some people would say, you know, I much prefer to kind of be on my own in my room or looking out the window or going on a walk. For me, it's really interesting because actually I love chatting about things with people and I, I find that, you know, that bubbling up, but then I kind of often need to like go away, process it, see what I think, bring it back. So the, the style is different for everyone. And I, and I think that's also really important as we go through thinking about what collaboration is, is looking at how do you design processes for collaboration that allow for everyone's different style? Because you might have a really kind of fun, energetic collaboration session, but someone might be like, actually, I don't think quickly, I think slowly. And that's really what's great about me. So yeah, I think, you know, certainly when we're designing things for people you know whether that's services or uh, products or experiences 
the really important thing is that we think about people <laughs> during that. Like, you know, collaboration is important because the more voices you have in a room, the more contribution you've had to your idea, the more likely it is to be relevant to more people, the more divergence of thought you'll have had, the more care you might have taken in kind of thinking about those ideas. So to me, that's the importance of having those different voices in the room. And I'm sure, Sophie, that's what your work reflects as well. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking as you were talking there, to what extent you need friendship to have strong collaboration? Because I think you need something that is a similar type of relationship to a good friendship when you feel like you've got a really good collaboration. You know, there's a mutual respect there and there's a kind of trust that the other person will let you go anywhere with your ideas. I was just thinking that as you were talking, Joe. like is friendship a prerequisite for good collaboration? I don't think so. We again, we run a senior leadership program at King's College London as well with professors. And we did have a conversation about, you know, a certain type of person who might always collaborate with their friends. And actually, somebody came to give a talk and talked about that's how they approach their collaborations. You know, it's easy because you have these brilliant relationships and you can really build off each other and you can really fire off each other. The problem with that, obviously, then is who isn't in the room if the first people that you call on to collaborate are your mates. And also, I think it's that thing about comfort, isn't it? How do you create enough comfort and safety that you can then go to risk? So personally, that's something that I know I've had to really wrestle with myself over the last few years, because I have a lot of very brilliant associates who are friends, who I can call on and say, yeah, let's work on this together. Let's collaborate on this together. And there's some level of diversity within that. But, you know, there's still people that I've met in my circles along my way in the work that I've done. And actually, the work we do is brilliant and it's easy and it means I can jump in quickly. But also it limits me because actually until I'm pushing out those circles, until I'm saying who else should I have in this conversation, who else might have a different idea, then, yeah, then that's limited. But what I would say is not necessarily about friendship, but it is about a process that creates comfort and ease and safety because you don't get challenge and risk until you have those things underneath yeah so there's almost building blocks needed for good collaboration you talked there about reaching out to different people with different approaches and mindsets to yours and the group of friends you often collaborate and work with and that aids the innovative process and helps your project further so I guess I was wondering how do you seek those people out without them feeling like they're only being invited just because they're slightly different? I think there's two ways of answering that. One is that, and this is something I think we can all do in our kind of personal lives and our work lives, is just to start to expand your networks and it not be like, I'm going to find someone for this, but just to be like, I'm going to go to different events that I normally go to and I'm going to look more people up online. I'm even, I'm going to follow people on Instagram that talk about things that I have different opinions to me or, you know, like those small things that we can all do to be like, I'm just going to slightly try and get out of this echo chamber. And then it's also a case of like thinking about, well, how do you run really great processes? How do you extend the invitation to this? Not just to people that, you know, you might not have had in your network before, but just broadly. Because again, even when we think, you know, I want to expand my network, even the way we might think about that is probably more narrow than it could be. Whereas if we get the invitation right and the invitation is open, we can put that out into the world. And, you know, we might get people that we never would have even considered or thought about as being interested in the thing that we're interested in. You know, a medic might say, I don't know why someone from arts and humanities would have anything particularly to share with what I've got. 
you put them in a room together and they come up with like incredible ideas, either about projects and programs or just about like, oh, you're doing it like this in your department, whereas actually we're doing it like this. And how can we learn from each other? So, yeah, that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> but, but loads of really great pearls of wisdom in there. The thing around networking, which is something that people are really scared of. We did an episode around networking. And what you were describing there, Joe, was some simple techniques. You know, go to an event that wouldn't normally be in your sector. So, you know, you're in the creative sector. So, like, go to a really, like, very businessy event, for instance, or the other way around. And you talked about creating networks that aren't just like you. And I think the term that I came across in something, I was delivering a workshop around networking only a couple of weeks back, was weak ties. So sort of beyond your circle and beyond that to someone else's and then beyond that, they're the places that you're going to find those connections, those collaborators who are slightly different. I find it difficult to have a straightforward answer to this. I mean, I work across two sectors, really, academia and the arts, and in both of which often there is a real culture of ask your friends first, you know, and it's just mm-hmm. default and it doesn't mean to be exclusive. It just ends up that way. Part of it is we've created certain systems. These sectors are built on quite a um, often quite closed door policies that don't necessarily welcome everyone coming to the table. So I've had several research appointments now where I've been embedded in different cultural organisations, trying to understand how innovation is kind of operating and changing the nature of work in those settings. And I guess it's partly because I'm sort of trained as an ethnographer, but I really try always really hard to listen for the voices you can't really hear. And often they're incredibly hard to detect because you can't hear them. I mean, all the things Joe said are definitely really valuable approaches to kind of keep building out those voices you can hear. But sometimes there's no clear way. It's just about hanging about (laughs) and asking people questions and small talk. And that's when you start understanding what people's perspectives are and what they might offer and why they feel not heard and those kind of things. And it's such a rubbish answer, really. No, no, not at all. It's very much what Joe said, taking it a step even further and broadening your search, your networking to anyone that passes you on the street. Even For example, I've often had conversations with people on the tram, so much so that I have a word for it, tramaraderie. Um, And I suppose the conversations, those collaborations, the beginnings of those things can happen anywhere. But going back to what you said, though, Joe, about the right process being put in place to make a really good collaboration. Have you got an example of a structure or a process, something you could recommend? I suppose for us, you know, there are a couple of different things that we do that might be of interest in terms of sort of getting out of your comfort zone, meeting new people trying out new things we run something called the January challenge which is um runs every January uh, and we work with different kind of community groups and artists and lots of different people across the country to set a little creative challenge that takes up five or ten minutes every day um and it never really requires any resources it means anyone can do it um, and I have taken part in many a January challenge for 64 million artists <laughs> and I think perhaps the best one was coming into 2020 when who knew what was going to happen to 2020. I have 64 million artists to thank for the fact that my window became a sort of place that I started putting things up and then the street got involved and then we had like children's birthdays we'd all do something I mean that was the prompt. And I think, you know, for me, the January Challenge is such a brilliant kind of breeding ground for innovation and collaboration, because essentially what it's, you know, we say do think, share. So you do the challenge, you think about what it was like, and then you share that with other people. So that might be 
online. So about 50,000 people do it every year. Lots of those people share on some different social media platforms, but also people do it in youth groups and in care homes and in prisons and in all sorts of different settings. And I think what I love about the kind of premise of the January challenge is that that little creative spark creates a kind of sense of vulnerability, like oh, I'm going to try this new thing that I might not have tried before. And then that sort of reflection allows you to kind of sit with that a bit. And then the sharing to me is really important because the combination of that vulnerability and that sharing creates new kinds of connections. And it allows you to kind of bring something new of yourself. And it's so great to be like, oh, they did that. I would never have thought about doing that. Or I did this. And, and that's what I really, really love. So I think whether or not it's the January challenge or something else in your environment, yeah, that's, again, doing creative stuff in the world is a great way to kind of bust out of your networks and meet new people and do other things. And, you know, for me, it's then it becomes about frameworks in which you spend a lot of time at the beginning getting everyone to a point where they feel comfortable with each other. But you forget often when you go into those settings that a lot of the people in those settings in all sorts of different environments for many different reasons will have spent their lives being told that their opinion isn't worth very much. And so actually you've spent a lot of time <laughs> building people up to feel like their opinions are worth something, that they have space to like rejig that bit of their brain <laughs> that kind of has lots of different ideas and then thinking about how you make the space equitable and then, you know, having really clear parameters so you know what's going to come out is going to be achievable. And there's all sorts of different things that come to that but yeah I would say a bit of creativity and a bit of vulnerability to create connection that is amazing and I suppose the other thing that's happened to me when I've been introducing creative things or even just talking about what I was doing with 64 million artists like oh you know we could do this and it'd be like oh no I'm not creative there are barriers there that people have carried with them for quite a long time and what you're talking about is creating that safe space so moving on We've talked about the process and I suppose about the traits or the qualities needed for good, innovative collaboration. Is there, though, a perfect number of people needed for a successful collaboration? You know, is it ever that there's too many cooks in that kitchen and spoiling that broth? I have always felt like there is no ideal number of collaborators, but you do need to set roles at a certain point. (laughs) And I'm quite a big fan of Edward de Bono's hats, the six hats and having different coloured hats, because that always seems quite a useful way of defining roles, especially if then someone takes on and I'm going to get these wrong now because there's a very leadership hat and then there's a kind of very creative hat and then there's a very business hat. But I quite like that it forces people out of their comfort zones in those particular roles. But that would be my take on it. It should be more the merrier, but within some sort of defined parameters. But I don't know what Joe would think about that. Yeah, to me, it's all about the structure. Like, you know, so what I would say is the more people you want to involve, the better your structures have to be. So the January challenge is, you know, in some ways a collaboration of 50,000 people and and it works, (laughs) but it works because we're not trying to come to sort of some cohesion. It's an invitation for us all to have a slightly different take on it. But if we were all, you know, (laughs) trying to work towards a goal, that would be impossible. So, yes, there's loads of brilliant tools out there now on kind of deliberative democracy and thinking about different ways of structuring democratic practice. So to me, the sky's the limit. There's loads of brilliant thinkers out there. There are loads of people collaborating on collaboration <laughs> tools. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I feel like a collaboration is only ever going to be as good as the kind of structure that holds it. 
so there are resources and structures out there when it comes to good collaboration so do check them out but we're coming towards the end of today's episode and just before we do i quickly want to ask both of you for an example of your best your most rewarding or even your most surprising collaboration I think my example is actually a guy called Chris Thorpe Tracy, who was a singer-songwriter and folk musician. He's now turned producer and editor and broadcaster. And I've worked with him on three podcast series. And he came on as my editor. So he was just going to do sound design and the producing. And he has ended up being... I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Critical friend, advocate, kind of galvanizer and motivator. He's a real creative. He's a musician. He's a creative. I'm obviously an academic who's very, very interested in art. There's a looseness about our conversations that I really value. He just asks the right type of questions and just pushes me a little bit. Great. I feel like there are so, so many in a way. So for me, I'm never the person with a little bit of theory. Like I'm such a practical learner. <laughs> and academia has always sort of terrified me. Like I kind of feel like I'm not as clever as people who read nonfiction books. <laughs> like how you know, like keep up to date with the latest theories on everything, because that is not me. And so whenever I go into those environments often or previously, when I used to go into those environments. I used to feel really intimidated. And then right at the beginning of 64 Million Artists, we collaborated with some academics at King's. And then through that, uh, I met this woman, Dr. Lorna Thompson. And so she commissioned us to do this programme with academics and took a real chance on sort of, you know, this organisation was pretty early. And I really remember, you know, walking into that first room in the first year, looking at all these just turned professors, a lot of them with their arms folded, thinking, who are you? (laughs) And then over the years, we've developed this unbelievable sort of specialism. You know, we work in all these universities up and down the country. You know, it was originally Laura and I, she took it from King's and then to Edinburgh and then she recommended us to Glasgow. And, you know, she is someone who is so, you know, brilliantly open and completely trusted us to get on and do that work. But it also made me realise, yes, I'd be a rubbish academic. But also the thing I have to bring to academia is what academia needs, which is, more about kind of human connection and heart and risk and you know vulnerability and that actually that isn't sort of fluffy stuff you know we we run those courses and when people have that space to be innovative and think differently they do start centers that bring in 20 million pounds and they do bring in these ideas that turn into things that have huge impact in the world and I don't think a lot of them would have done it if they didn't learn to trust themselves, learn about collaboration differently, think about things in different ways. So yeah, for me, it's been about learning the value of a collaboration where you're both coming at things from a really different perspective. Amazing. But sadly, that is the end of today's episode. And I suppose all that's left to say is that you can't have innovation without collaboration. Structure and frameworks put in place beforehand can only enhance your innovative process even further. And I suppose what I really want to say is that everyone has something valuable to bring to the discussion. But yes, thank you so much, Joe, Sophie, and thank you for listening. Be sure to like, subscribe and comment on today's episode. I'm Diana Passack-Atkinson and you've been listening to the Octopus of Enterprise. Bye. (laughs) 